But this morning we're going to do something a little bit different. So if you just remain standing with me for a second. In a moment, the lights are going to continue to dim and go all the way down. So if you're online and that's what you see, don't be surprised. It'll be a little black and a little gray, a little fuzzy. But I want you to imagine with me this morning, um, kind of the end of our passage in, in Mark. And it's this moment where Jesus would have woken up. He's lying probably on the ground and as his eyes open, maybe a little dry from overnight, maybe a little crusted over, and, and as he begins to remember where he is, and he's laying in the house of Peter in Capernaum and his mother-in-law, and he remembers yesterday was filled with all of this stuff. It was a crazy day, and it ended late into the night, and he is in this lack of sleep mode, but nothing will stop Jesus from getting up to pray. And so in the darkness of the morning, he, he would push himself up off the ground, and, and as his eyes are finally adjusted, he can see Simon and Andrew, the brothers, and James and John. And because it was such a late night, they probably didn't even have the chance to go home. And so he tiptoes through the little house. And as he enters or gets to the front door, he's met by the brisk, cool air. And so he wraps himself in his, in his garment. And from there, he would have walked out of the town of Capernaum up probably a mountain to a place where no one could find him. And it's a desolate place where only he and the Father. And here's the thing, like there's no sun, there's no one up. In fact, in behind, he could probably even see the stars still in the sky because that's how early it is. And no matter how little of sleep he would have gotten, he's like, nothing is going to stop me from spending time with my Father. And so he prays. So let's pray this morning. God, I don't know what's going on in each life here this morning. And, and maybe we'll be able to identify with Jesus at the end of this passage that we'll look and go, man, this week, maybe yesterday, maybe this week was just a crazy day. Maybe it was a crazy week. Maybe you go, like, there are people going, I am just in a season of life where I feel so incredibly busy. The demands of life, and that we can bring those to you this morning. And I pray that we would connect with our Creator this morning because prayer is about who we are connecting with. But Lord, it's also about submitting to your authority. And so, Lord, whatever's going on in life this morning, I pray that we would lay it at your feet. We would find rest in your love, your compassion, and your grace, but that we'd be challenged to follow you more closely. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, good morning. Yeah, that's the kind of a different way to start. If we haven't got a chance to meet, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. I just want to add my welcome to the other welcomes. If you're joining us online, thank you to you as well. Hopefully you can see now with the lights back on and all that good stuff. So we've been in a series started. This is week uh, three uh, in a series uh, out of the Gospel of Mark uh, titled Follow Me, right? These are the words that are going to are gonna appear just a couple of times uh, in the Gospel of Mark. But as we get all the way to the end of the book later on, like, like way later, you know, like we're going to get there and we're going to keep coming back to these words because the relationship that starts between Jesus and the disciples really starts with these words, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
And it's a new identity that he offers. It's also a new purpose that comes along with it. And I think this is challenging for us because like we said last week, if you were here last week or if you weren't here this last week, I think it's easy for us, you and I, myself included, to to follow Jesus from afar and to look at the story and to like fill in the blanks and go, yeah, I know that story. And yet what Jesus did in this last story radically and profoundly changes the relational environment because as he's by the sea, he pulls these four people along with him, right? And now for the rest of scripture, for the rest of this gospel, right, these guys are going to be on the side watching. And they're not watching from a distance, but they're watching from up close. And so here's my question for you this morning, and we will repeat it over and over and over, and it's this, are you watching? Are you watching from afar, or are you watching from up close? We are in chapter one still. We're only halfway through, not even halfway through chapter one. We're going slow, but here we go. Uh, Page 17 in the booklet. If you don't have one of these, you can grab uh, one of these um, afterwards, uh, and one of the ushers will grab that to you or give that to you. You can also get it at at the hub. So uh, here we go. We're going to start in uh, chapter 1, verse 21, but here's here's the thing. Like, we started at the end of this story, okay? We started with Jesus praying, and that's going to be the end. I want us to reverse or rewind. You ever, like, watch a movie where it's like, like, it shows you a scene, and then it says 24 hours ago. Okay, that's what we're doing. So we saw a scene, and now we're going back 24 hours, you know, after Jesus has called his his disciples. Here's what it says. It says, and they, right? This is like the first time you can see this, right? Because Jesus was by himself before last week. Now he's got four disciples, Simon and Andrew, James and John, right? And so they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Like, look how quick this story starts. Boom, 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 okay? So you've got, a, you've got this picture of the, the Sea of Galilee that you're going to see. This is kind of the northwest corner, beautiful, uh, gorgeous spot. So somewhere down there on the right, like uh, further away, is probably where Jesus found those guys in a boat. He's like, hey, come follow me. New identity, new purpose. Let's go. Let's do life, you know? And so they follow him. And what's the next thing that Mark records is they head into this town called Capernaum. And you can see that first word um, looks more like Capernaum because in the Hebrew, um, it actually comes from two words, Kafar Nahum, Kafar Nahum. And that's this guy named Nahum. Who's that? I don't know. We don't know. Some guy from a long time ago. But Kafar means village. Okay, now village is interesting because it started at this, as this small little rural village in upper, you know, like upper west side or east side of Galilee, okay? So here's like this small village. And yet, over time, as the story is unfolded and as society is building, right, Capernaum or Capernaum ends up being along the Via Maris, which is a trade route from north to south. And so anyone going anywhere to bring something somewhere is going to go through Capernaum. And so it booms. It goes from this tiny little village to this big kind of booming city. Some people would say that it was as small as 1,500. Some people would say it's as big as 10,000. I'd have been there. I don't think it's 10,000 people, guys. Like, I think it's more like two, okay? 
But 2,000 people, half of my hometown growing up is this kind of like, again, we think that's, that's small, but in, gosh, ancient Near East and in, in Israel times, like that's actually this booming spot. There's this fishing, business, markets, everything is growing. In fact, it's a large enough city that it would have been host to a whole group of Roman soldiers led by a centurion. And you're like, man, Mark is written to the Romans. And here's the reality is that there's no escaping. Where you go through this book, there's no escaping the authority of Rome. And yet what we're going to find this morning as Mark leads us into this new vision of Jesus is that we find a new authority. As the kingdom of God is being built, there is a new authority uh, that people uh, are ultimately going to follow, okay? So what he does is that he immediately circle, highlight, underline, whatever you do in your book, and then put a little number six by it because that's the sixth time in this book in the first half of the chapter that it's already been used. How crazy, right? And what Mark is doing is that he's inviting us to sense and to feel and to see the urgency of the kingdom. We don't know if, if everything that's about to happen was in a literal 24-hour period or not. In fact, it's probably not because Mark likes to summarize things. And so it's like John says, hey, here's the deal. If we recorded everything, we wouldn't, be able to, we wouldn't even be able to put it in a book. Like, there's not even enough books in the world, not enough papyrus, not enough oil, not enough ink, you know? And what Mark does is he gathers all of these different stories, and it's like they rise to the top, and then what does he do? He crams them together, and it's going to feel like this is a 24-hour period. Now, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but he's trying, to, he's trying to help us as readers sense and feel and see the urgency of Jesus' kingdom as it starts from day one. Because it's really like day one, isn't it? Like, like the call of the disciples is like the, the pre-day, you know? And then now it's day one. Boom. His ministry is really going. And here he's leading out into, into Capernaum. And so he enters into the synagogue, right? And here we got this picture. Um, this is uh, modern-day Capernaum uh, or Kafar uh, Nam or Nehem, Kafar Nehem. And then you've got all the white stuff on top, which is, um, which is limestone, which would have been like, brought in from another spot. But underneath, the, uh, underneath that limestone, because that's all like, like later, probably fourth century or something like that, underneath you see that black rock, that's basalt. That is the original foundation to a real synagogue, which would have been the only place that we can see or know of that Jesus would have actually been. Guys, I've been there. Can I tell you? It's real. <laughs> it's a real place. Guys, this isn't just a great story. We are grounding ourselves in the real story of the real Jesus. Are we watching? Here or here? Is this difference? Okay, so here's what we're going to see. We're going to get exposed to Jesus' authority here. Um, and the first one is starts in this, this authority in his teaching, okay? Look at verse 22. So he's teaching like, like in the synagogue, right, on the, on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. And it says, and they, which is the people that are in the synagogue, right, not just the disciples. It's not like the disciples are like, hey, that's amazing, Jesus. No, everybody in the synagogue is astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one who had authority. <laughs> I love this. And not as the scribes. It's like this little anecdote. Who are the scribes? The scribes were like the highest level people who could write and interpret law. Guys, these are the guardians of the traditions. 
They could be from any sect, any religious, any Judea, uh, Judaism sect, but most of them were Pharisees, okay? And these guys, are the, these are the top dogs of all of the people, right? And they're supposed to be the best, and Jesus enters into the story, and Mark's like, man, they were astonished, but not like the scribes, they're so lame. Like, they're just not even, like, who, the scribes who? Like, who were they? Because it's like they, they're drawn to Jesus because he teaches as one who had authority. What does that mean that he has authority? Um, you know, one of the things that stands out to me about Jesus is that, you know, Jesus, and this is so different from the world that we live in because this is not, you know, the, the disposition of our hearts, but Jesus, all of his being, all of his words, and all of his actions, all of that is in perfect alignment, so when Jesus walks into a room and he starts teaching and living and doing things, we're like, whoa, astonishment. Like we're just astonished at people who can do that well in today's world, let alone like Jesus when it's in perfect alignment, not like the hypocrites, those scribes who say one thing but then do another, right? You see, there's astonishment with Jesus because there's nothing out of balance. Okay, think about this in our life for a second, right? Like you wake up in the morning, or I wake up in the morning, whoever it is, we wake up, and we get out our Bible, and we're doing our cave time, and we're like, oh man, this is so good, and you're taking notes, and you're highlighting, and you're absorbing, and you're journaling, you're praying, you're doing whatever it is, I don't know, like what it is that you do, but you're like, oh man, this is so good, this is so rich, I'm starting my day exactly the way that I need to, that I want to, and then your kid wakes up cranky, <laughs> And life changes. Because then you get in the car and you drive them to school and kids like, mom, dad, I don't want to go to school today. Oh, well, why not, honey? Ah, because there's this kid, Billy. And he's a bully. He's a bully, Billy. Wow. Sweetheart, I'm sorry to hear that. We've talked about this before, though. You know, like one of the great things about Jesus, like you're overflowing out of your cave time right now, by the way. One of the great things that we know about Jesus is that he says to love your enemies. And then a car cuts you off. You're like, what was I saying? Do you see, like, you see the hypocrisy, right? Like, there's these things, like, when we say one thing, we do another, right? Like, like, all of a sudden, but you look at Jesus and every single thing, his entire person, all of his words, every single action is all in perfect alignment. And you look at Jesus and you're like, man, that is astonishing. It's incredible. How does he do that? Well, let's tell, you, let's tell you how, because you go all the way back in the story, right? There's something much deeper at play here. You go back to Genesis 1, right? God creates the universe. How does he do it? We know this. That, never mind. Okay, okay. Here we go. How does God create the universe? He spoke it into word. Like, he spoke it into being. Like, he uses a word. Like, he, like you're like, man, like, this is so, like, we think about this and we go, like, yeah, like, I, I know that that's true, but, like, have you really ever really just sat down and realized how totally foreign that is to your world? Like, you go home and you want sourdough, you're like, okay, here's the, well, I don't know what the ingredients are, I shouldn't have chosen that. Here's how do you make, uh, here's how you make mac and cheese, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, you, and you gather all the ingredients and you put it together, it's not like you just go, mac and cheese. You know, and I get like, no, we know that's not how it works, but that's how God did it. 
He's like, he looks into the vast nothingness and he's like, hey, I want something. Boom, done. Speaks it into existence with a word. That's the authority that God has in his teaching. Here's what's even crazier. You follow the story, you go into the New Testament, you look at Colossians 1, and what do you find? You find Jesus. And actually it says about Jesus, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. In him all things were created. And by the way, all things are held together in Jesus. And you're like, what? So at the beginning of time, it was Jesus. He spoke it into being. He spoke it into existence. Like, this is Jesus. Like, like, all of a sudden, like, we're wrapping our brain around this new Jesus. And then you, you go backwards a little bit in the New Testament to John 1. It says, oh, by the way, the Word became flesh. And you're like, whoa, this is the Jesus in this story. Guys, the key word in that sentence that he taught as one who had authority is the word had. He has it because he is it. Guys, you think about it, it's, it's the word in the, in the Greek, it's the word ekon, okay? Now, originally, uh, ekon kind of starts in simple manner. It's like this, right now, um, I do or do not have a mug. I do not. But now, uh, now that I'm holding it, I do, right? Now I don't, now I do, right? But if you go that next step, you know, I, all of a sudden, I begin to think of this as ownership. Well, this is my mug, and so therefore... It is mine. I have it. But see, here's the thing about Jesus is that Jesus doesn't wield authority like a mug or like a sword. It's not a tool where he just like, hey, he's got to pick it up and use it. No, it's actually an ownership that actually goes all the way in here. And it's the result of everything about him that's perfect. He has ultimate authority in this life because he is the ultimate authority. And now no wonder people are like, Wow, he teaches like he had his like he has authority. Like they're clueless and just like, yeah, I created everything. Boom. You see the difference. You see the authority that Jesus has. And it's different for us, guys. Here's the deal. We either borrow authority or we make it up our own. We either borrow it or we make it up. Okay, first one, borrow it. Right? Let's just imagine that you're in your cave time and you go and you got your highlighter right? These are great tools, by the way, for Bible study. You go and you're like, man, shh, oh man, so good. So, oh man, look at that. Like that part, oh man, that's really, really good. God, thanks so much for bringing that to my attention today. I really needed that. That's so good. Wow. And then you go and throughout the day and somebody's like, hey, I got this thing. Oh, let me share with you something that God gave me this morning. You see what you're doing is it's, it's borrowed and you're giving it back. You're giving it to somebody else. It's borrowed, right? That's the power of the yellow highlighter. Guys, but here's the reality, is that sometimes in life, when we go to cave time, we just we read something and we go, man, Jesus, oh, that was so good right there. That's so good. That, yeah, actually, you know, I actually, I don't, I don't, I don't like that part. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to switch highlighters. I'm going to go to the black Sharpie. And I'm going to, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's not, you know what? I'm just not feeling that right now. That, clearly, that line, that doesn't fit in today's culture. No way. Like, there's no way God in his right mind would ever, you know, believe that. Yeah, no way. Uh-uh. And all of a sudden, like, we begin, like, sometimes I wonder, like, does our Bible look more like a redacted CIA document? 
You see that in a show, like they, like somebody's looking like, hey, tell me about Operation blah, 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 and they pull it out, like, I can't even tell what it says because it's all black highlighter. Sometimes I wonder if that's true for us with God's word in today's world, that we look at it and we go, man, does that really make sense? Guys, here's the reality. You and I don't get to choose what pages or what sentences or what verses or what words apply to us because we are not the authority. We either borrow it or we make it up our own. Jesus is ultimate authority. He has it because he is it. There's nothing higher. And so when we talk about God's word, it goes, guys, here's the reality. You want to elevate Jesus in your life? Guess what? You got to elevate this. Bring it to the top. Let this be a new thing for you or a fresh thing as you dive into Jesus. Guys, I heard this this week. This is a challenging thing. It's been challenging for my heart, and so I'll, I'll share it with you and see if it's challenging for you. But here's the reality. By the time we get to the end of the Gospel of Mark, you or I will either be on one or the other side. We will either flog Jesus or we will bandage his wounds. We will either crown him with thorns or we will crown him with glory because there is no middle ground with Jesus. Here's my challenge to you this week. Go jump into Mark. If you haven't yet, take one hour of your life. I'm an average speed reader. I can read this in a little over an hour, okay? Go start in chapter one and read all the way to chapter 16, you know, because here's the deal. Sometimes I think, like, like, have you ever, like, met somebody, and you're like, hey, have you seen that new movie? They're like, yeah, the second half was great. I started it, just fast forward it all the way to half, and then I watched it. It was great. Like, no one does that. Read it from beginning to end. Go start chapter one. Take one hour of your week and go, I'm going to read and immerse myself in the real story, in the real Jesus. It's my challenge to you this week. To elevate Jesus in our life is to elevate God's word. Because Jesus has authority in his teaching. And that is where we start this morning. But he also has authority over creation. Check this out. Uh, verse 23. And immediately, highlight, underline, circle, whatever you're doing, that's uthus, that's the urgency of the kingdom. There was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Can you just picture this moment? Like, what if this happened in church? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Like, I, I, I know, I know who you are the Holy One of God. Can you imagine this happening in this? Like, I love um, um, that there's like these clueless humans in the story, right? There's these humans who are like, oh man, this Jesus, he's pretty cool. And the demon's are like, I know who you are. Do you ever like meet somebody in life who knows more about you than you know about them? Uh-huh, it's creepy. It's a little weird. Because you enter into this story and they like start telling you things and you're like, wow, I don't know you. I'm a little frightened. Like what happened? Like how, how is this? Guys, here's the reality. Satan does not have omniscience. He doesn't have all knowledge. He doesn't have all power. He does not have the tools that God has at his resource. But here's the reality. I think that Satan knows more about you and I than we know about him. Makes us think. 
Makes us think a little bit, doesn't it? Because you got the clueless humans and you got the demons who are like, Jesus, I know who you are. What business is it that you and I have? Have you come to destroy us? Because I love that the first conflict in Mark is not with scribes, it's not with Pharisees, it's not with some random people like, like arguing over some like minuscule law. No, like in Mark, the very first conflict is Jesus and demons. Like the, the Jesus starts his thing, goes into a synagogue, guess what? Satan is there. And that's the way that the story starts. And their interaction is built on these demons, like worried about the fact that Jesus has what? Authority. Have you come to destroy our kingdom? That's the way that Mark starts. Guys, this is the way that Mark jumps right into Jesus' ministry. You're like, man, that escalated quickly, didn't it? That's why I love Mark. It's so good. I love all the Gospels. I love all the Bible, but I love Mark. It's so good, right? Okay, so we go back to, remember we talked about this this last week, right? You've got Earth, you know, the, you know, the nice peace-shaped planet, and then you've got heaven, right? You've got all of the cosmos, and, and however this works for God, you know, um, but we talked about, like, this, this fact that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God to earth, right? The kingdom of heaven to earth. But we're just to look and go, okay, so this is like the, like, this was the way that the world was designed to be, which was good, but then all of a sudden, when sin enters in, what happens is that it became no longer a place of light, but really a place of darkness. This became the space in which, in which Satan can really operate. But as Jesus enters into the story, what do the demons call him? They call him the Holy One of God. It's this idea that, gosh, there's this full acknowledgement that he is separate. Like, this is our world. That's your world. Why can't you just stay over there? Because as soon as the Holy One enters into this space, here's what happens. The kingdom of God begins to grow. And here's the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, it's like this dark room. It's like now a door is being opened up and light is coming into the world. And you're like, if you're a demon, you're like, bah, no. You see, you see light and darkness don't coexist. You open a door at your home that's dark with the hallway light on, as light enters in, it invades. The two things cannot coexist. Guys, it's a natural thing. The destruction of Satan's rule is a natural consequence for Jesus' rule. It's a natural consequence, whether that's in the kingdom of God or if that's in your life. When Jesus enters in as he's building the kingdom, those doors need to be opened and light needs to fill it. And that's where Satan has no opportunity to really work the same. Because look at this in verse 25. Here's what happens. You see Jesus rebukes the demon saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing. This is crazy, right? Like convulsing. We don't know what this really looks like or how it really happened, but like convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Okay, I just want you to imagine for a second, like synagogue ends. And as all of the people from synagogue start to exit the building, and there's this chatter. Watch out, watch out. Can you believe? Oh, man. Ah. And here comes Todd. 
I hope there's nobody here named Todd. I just tried to grab a name that I didn't think anybody had. Todd comes into the story. He's like, man, what happened? Oh, were you at church today? Were you at synagogue? Uh, no, no, I was out fishing. Okay. No, hey, man, you, oh, man, you do not want to miss this. Like, there was this guy, Jesus, he came in. He's got these four disciples. He's, like, starting his rabbi ministry. He enters into synagogue. Guess what? That guy with the demon, oh, man, he showed up and just, like, and sucked him out. He's gone. You shouldn't have missed Sunday. Oh, man, well, you know, I caught two fish. Yeah, yeah pretty astonishing, yeah? Like, man, you don't want to miss. Like, this is, like, you look at this, and you go, man, are you watching? Are you watching from a distance, or are you watching as if you're there in person? Like Peter, and Andrew, and James, and John, who are seeing this Jesus enter into the story, who flips kingdoms upside down. Demons respond to his name. And guess what? Here's how this ends, right? Is that these people, they say, what is this? Or they say, and they were all amazed. Remember, it started with astonishment. Now that they're amazed, right? It started with this, man, Jesus is really, man, he's way better than those scribes. So good, so good. There goes the demon. They're like, boom, amazed. Because here's the difference. It's the difference between Jesus being a good teacher that we applaud and an authoritative teacher that we respond to. Because you look at Jesus and you go, this is new teaching. We've never seen anything like this ever before. Guess what? He has authority in his words. Even the demons respond. Jesus shows up. He said some things, did some things, and lives changed. That's amazing. Is that the Jesus that we're watching? Man, that's good. Can I give you a word of caution here for a moment, guys? Because following Jesus... Man, following Jesus is not for the faint-hearted. You want to know why? Here's first reason. Because by doing so, you're actually getting close to the creator. That's amazing in and of itself. So be prepared. Number two, the more you get to know Jesus, the more you're going to get to know Satan. Because Satan is going to be all up in your business. Guys, I think that, that there's this movie that came out a long time ago, and I, and I still hold on to this. I never watched this, the movie, but I remember this line. It says this. It says that the greatest lie that the devil ever told was convincing the world that he didn't exist. You see, you think about our world, and you go, man, if Satan is real, he's pretty anonymous. I think that some of his greatest oppression happens in his anonymity. Part of what Satan's biggest strength is Part of what his greatest sense of control is in this world, and, in, in, and even in the Christian world, one of Satan's greatest elements of control is this idea, to, his, his ability to harness humankind's inability to have self-control. Because we're like, man, just feed me. Just shove it down the hatch. I want all this world can provide. And Satan's like, yeah, baby, here you go. Take it. Eat to your heart's content. I think that sometimes we are at the very least naive and at the very worst, we're ignorant. You wonder, like you go anywhere, travel anywhere in the world other than the United States and you'll see Satan works differently. You come here, it's like, man, he's anonymous. 
Not really a thing. Does he even really exist? You go to other places, you're like, oh man, he exists. Let me tell you, the reason why I don't think he works that way here is because we would take Jesus way more seriously. He's like, Matt, hands off. You're doing a fine enough job on your own. Look at you guys just eat. That's the thing. I go, look at this, guys. Are you watching? You're watching the way that Jesus enters in the story. Because here's how this part ends. It says, at once, circle, highlight, underline, because that's uthus, urgency of the kingdom. Jesus shows up. There's demons involved. Guess what? Boom. His fame spreads everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Wow, that's Jesus. That's cool. That's so cool. That's so cool. But it's not just authority over over demons. He has this authority over sickness. Look at this in 29. So everyone is leaving the synagogue. Guess what? Immediately, circle, highlight, underline. He left the synagogue and entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Yeah, like the mood shifts, right? Demon, oh, mother-in-law, ill. So there with a fever. What did Peter Andrew, James, and John do. Immediately, highlight, underline, circle, uthus, urgency of the kingdom. What do they do? They tell Jesus about her. He came in, and he looks down. He takes her by the hand, and he pulls her up, and her fever is gone. You see the compassion of Jesus. Guys, this is the way that Mark is laying it out. You guys want more compassion? I know that this is going to be more challenging and a little bit harder. You want more compassion? Jesus, come next week. You see him with the leper. It's going to be awesome. But right now, this is what you see. There's compassion as he reaches down. I don't know if you guys know this, but the Sea of Galilee was one of the only freshwater body sources in all of Egypt. Most common sicknesses in their day could have been cleansed simply by washing in clean water. All of a sudden, you begin to think differently about the world in which we live in. Because most of their diseases, man, I'm sick. Well, have you tried washing? <laughs> right? And Jesus is in the midst of where all these people would flock. He's like, you don't need water. What you need is me. And he pulls her up. How beautiful. The compassion of Jesus in that moment. Are you watching? That's the real Jesus. Are you watching? Right? You come back to this. This story over here right? You see, part of what Jesus is doing when he heals people, guys, it's not just that he's just, it's not that he's just trying to make life better for people. He's actually inviting them into the gospel story because what you might remember is at the beginning of time, right? As creation started, this is the way that the world ought to be. But when sin entered into the story, this all of a sudden is now the way that the world is. It's filled with brokenness, harm, grief, hardship, toil, struggle, you name it. That's the way that the world is. But when Jesus enters in with the kingdom of God, now we see what the world can be. And by the way, then as he heals people, as he's restoring them, he's bringing shalom, he's bringing right order back to creation. I'm not just healing you, I'm actually making you the way that you are designed to be. And so he's pointing back to this, the way the world ought to be, which in fact is the way that the world one day will be. You see, it's about shalom. 
It's about Jesus establishing and building his kingdom on earth. Now get this, look at verse 32. It's where he sums it all up. He wraps it up. It says, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. The entire city shows up at Peter's house. He started in the synagogue, then he heals the mother-in-law, then they have a nice little dinner, and then the whole 2,000 people are there saying, I want some of that. How long does it take to heal 2,000 people? That must have gone into the night, way into the night, to the sense in which Jesus is like, man, this was a crazy day. Filled with so much good stuff, but man, was it crazy. And again, this may not have all happened in one 24-hour period as it reads in Mark, because Mark is pulling up and highlighting these stories, and when he does that, he can jam them together, and you read it, and it's like, man, we begin to sense and see and feel the urgency of the kingdom in the way that Jesus is flipping the world upside down. But when we think about crazy days, it makes us think about the world in which we live in. Like how many of you guys would think of yesterday or this last week or this last season and say, man, it's been a crazy season. I am busy to the bones. I feel like I'm running all over the place. I've got everything that I'm carrying in my heart. All of this stuff that's happening and go, man, I just, this is the way that life is supposed to be. It's just so busy. It's too busy. Guys, here's the reality is that some of that is just, just life. We can't fix it. But the reality is also is that there is the high possibility that some of us in this room are just too busy and we need to let some things go because we need to follow Jesus because that is most important in the midst of the craziness of life. Here's what Jesus' model is for us. Look at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. In the midst of busyness, in the midst of all of the demands, in the midst of everybody seeking him and needing him, what does he do? He climbs up a mountain. He finds himself probably in a cave like this, just situated right up on the hill, right behind Capernaum. And it's in this moment, in this space that he prays until the disciples come. Because what happens in the morning is that everybody from town lines up at Peter's door. They're like, hey, we want more Jesus. And the disciples are like, man, this is so good. Business is booming. We can buy a building. We can set up multi-site. We can do whatever we want. This is awesome. Let's go. Come on, Jesus. Let's find him. Here we go. Jesus, guess what? Everybody's looking for you. Cool, cool, cool. Guess what? You're going to have to say no because we're going to go to the next town. And it makes us wonder what Jesus is that we're really waiting for and looking for. Because Jesus knew exactly what, who he was and what he came to do, which was to preach the gospel. 
There was a whole world that needed him. He couldn't spend his entire time in one town. He knew the extent of the ministry that needed to happen in this place. Guys, here's the reality, is that we are Christians reading a book about Christ. And if one of Jesus' greatest goals in his ministry was to teach the gospel, then one of our greatest goals as Christians should be to learn the gospel. And I don't mean just like spouting off Bible verses. Like that's good, okay? But it's not like Jesus is inviting people. It's not like he's inviting his disciples to come to church for coffee and donuts. It's not what he's doing. He's not inviting them to a Bible study of Job to talk about the sufferings of the world. Those are all good things. But what Jesus is doing is saying, follow me. Follow me, sun up to sun down, Monday to Saturday, and then Sunday. That's the Jesus who is calling people. Guys, here's the reality. We are far too busy not to pray. Because we need to go into the cave and say, God, we need to connect with you, but we also need to submit to your authority. Guys, we are halfway through chapter one. There's astonishing teaching. Demons respond. Sicknesses are healed. In fact, all of heaven, all of earth, and all of hell agree that Jesus is the son of God. Are you watching? I want to end with this, these application moments for us. What I want you to notice about Jesus is that man does Jesus serve people. Morning, sun up to sun down, no matter how busy your day is, is that you can be a servant. Serve people. So good. Whatever it is, make your posture about serving. By the way, Peter's mother-in-law, what does she do? She's healed and she serves. Guys, we got Ellen Hopkins who's come to us and said, here's the deal. We love our friendship. We love our partnership. Will you help us? We're like, hey, let's do that together. Let's serve Ellen Hopkins. Let's do that. Everybody go buy one thing on that list and we can take care of that list right now. But it also makes me think about where we live and where we work and where we study and where we play. How do I become a servant in those areas? That's the posture. Last one is prayer. Again, we're too busy not to pray, right? And so Jesus' model is in prayer. Here's the first thing that I think Jesus does. Prayer is about connecting to who we are talking to. It's not about what you get. Prayer is about connecting to who we're talking to, okay? It's where it's a place where we come and we share everything with God and say, here's everything in my life, and we can find rest in grace and love and the compassion of God who would reach down and pull us up. But prayer is also a place that we submit to his authority. God, what's going on in my life, and what would you have of me? Because that's what Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this story, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded, even as you think about the whole larger biblical story, the way the world ought to be, and yet the way that the world really is, and yet as Jesus enters in his story, like he offers this hope about this is the way that life can be, and by the way, it's the way that one day life will be. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who, as we look at Jesus, as he's building his kingdom here at Salem in Fargo-Moorhead and across the world, that we here at Salem would be a people who are not just astonished at the teaching of Jesus, but people who are amazed. 
people who gravitate to Jesus with yellow highlighters and not black ones, that we would say, Jesus, we so love you in all that you are doing. May we find rest in you and to submit to you and your authority. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.